of was something other than the kingdom of Caesar or the kingdom of Herod. It was another thing. It was separate from all of it. That's why he said this kingdom that I'm doing is nothing like what you see in this world. It's completely different. When people come to Jesus and they try to trap him and and swearing allegiance to a kingdom, they hand him a coin and on the coin is an image of Caesar. The word image there is idol. And he says to them, uh, whose idol is on this coin? It's Jesus's way of saying the kingdom that we're doing, the image that's on your heart has nothing to do with Caesar. And so the kingdom of God that we are learning about has nothing to do with Politics. Politics cannot bring the kingdom of God into existence. We understand that? Your view of the kingdom will affect your politics. What you think of the way that Jesus teaches will change the way you think of societal issues. It'll change the way you vote. But you cannot elect the kingdom of God into office. It doesn't work that way. It'll affect it. We use the illustration of throwing the rock into the lake and the rock will hit the water and the ripples go out. The ripples are not the rock. The, ro- the ripples are caused by the rock. Are we following here? So the kingdom of God is completely separate. It affects those things. It changes the way you think about them, but it is not it. Uh, the president, whoever is in office, is not the kingdom or the king of the kingdom of God. Amen. Uh, the other thing we talked about uh, as we looked at this is that Jesus also says that the kingdom of God is this, uh, it is where when you see it, it is the act of seeing God's will freely done on earth as it is in heaven. The kingdom is those places where we see God's will uninhibited. And when Jesus teaches us how to pray in Matthew 6, he says those lines, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And so he builds this differentiated uh, places where we see God's will openly and freely done in heaven. And he prays that God's will is openly and freely done on earth as much as it is in heaven. And so the kingdom of God is present always where the God's will and reign are done in your life and in your world freely as it is in heaven. And then we get to this part in Matthew 5 where he starts talking about this counterintuitive way of thinking about who's in this kingdom or not. He's speaking to a group of Jews. He's speaking to a group of Greeks. He's speaking to a group of outsiders and insiders who think they have a grasp on what the kingdom of God actually is. They tied it to a new and reigning Jerusalem where Jerusalem was the superpower. Israel was a superpower. And Jesus comes in and says, not like that. That's not our kingdom. And he starts listing people who the kingdom of God is actually present with. And he starts by saying, those who are poor in spirit, the ones, if we want to realize what that means in our society, the ones who are on the down and outs, the ones who think that they are the furthest from God, Jesus calls them blessed. The ones that have no ounce of spiritual goodness in them, or they think they don't have any ounce of spiritual goodness in them. Jesus says, you are blessed. And when we hear the word blessed, our instant 
thing is go, oh, blessed, hashtag blessed. We're great. We're happy. Everything is going our way. That's what we think of when we hear blessed. But the blessed that Jesus talks about is a different kind of blessed. When Jesus says blessed, he's talking about a divine posture, a closeness. Blessed are the poor in spirit. He says, for theirs is the kingdom of God. What he's saying is those who are poor in spirit are blessed because they find out the word blessed means God is on your side. He's actually close to you. When you think you're the furthest from God being poor in spirit, actually he's right by your side. He's on your team. He's next to you. He's with you. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the... And then he says, blessed are those who mourn. And we think about the society in which he's talking. People who are crying, people who are going through loss, people who are mourning the state of the world, the state of their family, the state of themselves. Blessed are you who mourn. And then you look at the word blessed, it's the same blessed. Jesus isn't saying happy are you who mourn, because that doesn't make any sense. He's saying those who mourn. Those who are experiencing the pain of loss, those who avoid grief because of the pain it comes, he's saying God is next to you when you mourn. He's on your side. And because of that, you're comforted. We talked about how we are the presence of Christ to a mourning world, to those who mourn in our community. We become the presence of comfort to them and that Christ is with us and we comfort them as the way Christ would comfort them. We don't mourn alone when everything is going wrong. Last week, uh, my family was in mourning. It was the one year anniversary of dad's passing. So I wasn't here. My friend Jeff came and and taught and uh, he talked about the meek. Blessed are the meek, the ones who don't seem like they have it all together, the humble ones, the, the, the ones who don't own anything, the ones who have power but tend to hold back with it. And you look at the opposite of meek, the powerful, the ones who strong arm. And Jesus says, blessed are the meek, for they're the ones that actually own the earth. We think the powerful own the earth. When you have a pink slip, you own it, you're in charge, you have power, but Jesus flips it around and says, actually, it's the meek ones that get the earth. It's the meek ones that own it. Blessed are the meek. God is next to the meek ones. God is on their side. And as we continue down, we get to Matthew 5, uh, 6. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Remember what blessed doesn't mean. Blessed isn't happy are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Blessed are those who hung. God is next to those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Those times when you're hungry, those times when you know that you're missing something, It's not the times when you're filled with something. It's the time when you know something's lacking and you know that thing to be righteousness. You're blessed. It's the absence of filling that God is blessing here. And even in that absence, this this beatitude shows us that God's presence and blessing is still on our lives. 
but it raises us some questions. If we are blessed for when we're hungering and thirsting for righteousness, we need to define some things. So we're going to define three questions that help us understand this a little bit better. For the first one, what is righteousness? The second one, what does it mean to actually hunger and thirst? And then what will we be filled with? We ready? I'm going to go fast because we're going to run late. Uh, if I go too late and you have to go, just leave. We'll, we'll catch up. Uh, but we'll go, we'll go quick. The first question, what is righteousness? In our Western cultures, we usually think uh, of righteousness in one way and it complicates things. We tend to think about it in a context of behavior. We're either right or we're wrong. It's how you act that makes you righteous. If we live righteously, if we do the right thing, if we say the right things, if we even think the right things, then we are, think of ourselves as righteous. That's one way to look at it, right? Yeah, you're right. You do all these right things. You are a righteous person. You've never been pulled over on the side of the road. Righteous. You're obviously late to everything then. So your calendar's not really righteous. But that's not what Jesus is talking about here. The, uh, there's another way to see that, and, and we see righteousness later in Scripture when you get into the writings of Paul. Uh, basically, behind the book of Acts, Paul, Paul wrote the rest of them except for a few of them. But when you get into his writings, he talks about righteous in a different way. He talks about righteous as an emphasis of salvation, a righteousness that is inherited from Christ. When we start to relearn our calling to be priests on this world, uh, priests that represent Jesus to the, or God to the rest of the world, when you start to realize that, you will start to inherit righteousness. Uh, it comes from Christ's death and resurrection. It's a good way to look at it, and it's in Scripture, and it's later in Scripture, and it's great. It's a primarily Gentile way of looking at that word righteous. Gentile meaning not Jewish. And Paul's main audience was to the not Jewish people, which is a fine way to look at it, but that's not what Jesus is talking about when he says righteousness here. The way Jesus uses the term righteousness is vastly different for Jesus's audience that day, primarily Jews or those who are living in the Jewish part of the world, heavily influenced by the Hebrew theology the word righteousness is connected to this idea of shalom and peace. Blessed are those who hunger for shalom, for a time when everything is in its right place, a time when there's a proper relationship between God and man, a proper relationship between humans and humans, a proper relationship between humans and the earth, a proper relationship between humans and themselves. When everything is in its right place, when there's peace, where God's will is done freely and openly without any obstacles, when you hunger and thirst for righteousness, that's what Jesus is talking about here. Righteousness is referring to God's ultimate desire for this world. This hunger and thirst for shalom, for everything to be intended back to the way it was intended to be. Now, this desire, this hunger for righteousness shows up in a, a few different ways. One of them is a global way. We can look at our thirst for righteousness and look at it globally, and we want those things to be made right. If you've watched the news or opened up your Facebook feed in the last 10 minutes, you see some of the issues that we're dealing with in our society today. I'm a glutton for punishment. 
uh, yes, Friday morning, I opened up Facebook and I get back from the gym and I just start scrolling and I start to see that video of that little boy who was trapped in the bombing and then he was taken out and he was put in the ambulance and he's just sitting there shell-shocked, didn't know what to do. Hunger and thirst for righteousness. Righteousness in that thing is not that I need to be right in this. Righteousness and the hunger and thirst for it is that whole broken system of what's happening in Syria and those surrounding countries. All I can see was my little 14-month Judah sitting on the ambulance and my heart broke. Hunger and thirst for that to be made righteous, for that to be fixed. We see that on the global side of it. This desire for righteousness is the desire that those images stop existing, not because we disconnect and throw everything away, because that doesn't stop them from existing. The hunger and thirst is that that little boy has a place to go that's safe. That little boy has somewhere to go where he's not going to have to worry about an air raid or a shell or chemical gases coming into his house. That's the hunger and thirst for righteousness. And we see it on a global epidemic side of it. And yes, there are sides to this and there's arguments on either side. But the key that we're looking at is that little boy and his mom and his dad shouldn't have to worry about what they're worrying about. And we hunger and thirst for God's shalom to be in that region and in that foreign policy and in that welcoming arms. And we hunger and thirst for righteousness. It's what Isaiah desires. In Isaiah chapter 2, he says this, He will judge between the nations and will settle disputes for many peoples. This, the he there is God. They will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not take up sword against nation, nor will they train for war anymore. Come, descendants of Jacob, let us walk in the light of the Lord. It's a desire that Isaiah foresaw where things like war never existed ever again the global side of it, where we don't see a refugee problem because we, we have it figured out. You hunger and thirst for righteousness on a global side. Other times, the hunger and thirst for righteousness is found in systems that we see all throughout our world. When we run into systems that don't function right, people treated differently because of the way they look, because of their gender, because of their choices, the systems that break down there. And we hunger and thirst for righteousness for people to be treated equally across the board. And we hunger and we thirst for that. Perhaps it's a broken system like education. Maybe it's a, a business that has questionable manufacturing practices. Maybe it's a family dynamic that you see where there's hatred and shame and betrayal Maybe it's a family in your neighborhood where you know there's abuse happening and you see these systems all around you and you want those systems to be made right. You want justice to happen. You want fairness to happen. You want people in their own homes not to be afraid. And so you hunger and thirst for righteousness. Amos talks about this. Amos is a great book. You should read it. Uh, uh, it's one of those books that you kind of fast forward when you're flipping through your Bibles because it's kind of strange. But Amos says this. 
There are those who turn justice into bitterness and cast righteousness into the ground. There are those who hate one, uh, who hate the one and, up, and upholds justice in the court and detest the one who tells the truth. You levy a straw tax on the poor and you, impo- and you impose a tax on the grain. For I know your offenses and how great your sins. There are those who oppress the innocent and they take bribes and deprive the poor of justice. Therefore, the prudent keep quiet at such times, for their times are evil. Amos is standing before a king. Amos is a tree farmer. And he stands before the king, and he starts pointing things out of everything that's broken in the system that he finds himself in. And many of us can do that. We can stand at our desk on our phones and start saying, that's broken, that's broken, this is broken. And we can point out these places. And what we're really desiring there is righteousness. Righteousness that supersedes the political parties. Righteousness that isn't governed by an office. Righteousness that comes from a desire for God's wholeness and God's peace. This is the righteousness that Jesus speaks of. In Matthew 22, Jesus speaks more about righteousness. He replies this, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the greatest commandment. And the second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. This is what it looks like to hunger and to practice righteousness freely on earth as it is in heaven. So this is the righteousness Jesus talks about. Would you say that we're a little bit hungry for this? We want this in in our world. We want this in our society. So what then brings us to the second question? We have what righteousness looks like, but what does this hunger and thirst look like? Hunger and thirst, physical longings. You're thirsty for something. You want that coffee in the morning when you wake up. You long for it. You have a craving and you can't get that taste out of your mouth. When Carrie was pregnant with Judah, I tell stories about Carrie. I've already asked her permission, so don't think that I'm ratting on her. Uh, She had this craving one night for a cheeseburger. Uh, She was about five, six months pregnant. And uh, she calls me, I'm in my office, and she says, I want a cheeseburger for dinner. And at that point, the pregnancy, you go, okay, uh, let's, let's get it. And she goes, but I want a cheeseburger from Lil Woody's down there on Market Street. That cheeseburger, and I want those sweet potato fries with two ranch dressings. Very specific. And, and then, as I'm on my way there, a milkshake. Like, this is a pregnancy craving if I've ever seen one. Okay, and so I go, I go, it's like five o'clock, which is the worst time to go from where my office is to Ballard because everybody's going that way. Okay, so we'll go get that. I find parking, I go in, I order it, I wait. I get it, I muscle, I hustle all the way back to where, where we live and I, get, I bring her the burger, the fries, the milkshake that had a little bit missing. I don't know where it went. Um, <laughs> And I bring it to her and I sit it down in front of her and the thought of it made her gag. But she wanted it still so badly. And it sat there on the table and there were tears involved because I want to eat this, but I know it's going to make me puke, but I really, really want this. That was a hunger and a thirst for a cheeseburger, sweet potato fries, two ranch dressings, and a chocolate shake. 
She ended up, because she was so hungry and thirsty for it, eating it and gagging at the same time because she wanted it so badly. Have you ever craved something like that? Have you ever wanted something really, really, really badly? Uh, when I was young and a little more foolish, I ran marathons. And around 20 mile, mile 24, you're just kind of thinking you're an idiot for doing this. And you're running, and then you smell the finish line with the pizzas and the beers. And mile 24 beer is amazing. Um, and you start to think this, and you start wanting that, and that's what pulls you to the finish line, is that craving, that hunger, that thirst. Have you ever had something like this? Are you craving that, those things in your craving when you already have them? Or are you craving them because they're missing? You don't have it. So when you hunger and you thirst for righteousness, it means that something is missing and you want it really, 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 really bad. There's a way that this passage has been taught. And it, it, it tells, it's, it's told us certain ways that when we read this, what Jesus is saying, and it's not, I don't think it's a great way to look at this passage. What they've said that this passage means was that you have to hunger and you have to thirst for the right and correct things in order to be blessed. I don't think it works that way. Sure, there's some truth to it. But I don't think that's what Jesus was saying here. If you take that to the nth degree, you take it all the way down, and what that tells me is that in order to have God with you, if that's what blessed means, God on your side, then you have to do certain things correctly. You have to have right answers. You have to desire the right things. You have to have the right things figured out. But if we're hungering and we're thirsting, and in the middle of that absence, Jesus still calls us blessed, it tells me that he blesses the fact that they're not there yet, and that in the middle of that longing, in the middle of that desire, he stands next to you and says, I'm with you on this one. The moment we make this into a law, we miss the point of the teaching. It's not, he's not giving us guidelines. He doesn't start, make this a command and say, if you're hungry and thirsty, you need to do four things to hunger and thirst after the right stuff. He doesn't say that. Jesus is making announcement. He doesn't say, uh, here's seven steps to fulfill your hunger. That's not what he says here. He doesn't give a nice teaching about hunger and thirst and how we can get rid of it. He's not telling us how to get rid of it. He doesn't have to hand us a recipe book. He doesn't blame people here for hungering and thirsting after the wrong things. And he doesn't give facts about being hungry and give you a pamphlet about it. He's not establishing a new law in this place. He's talking to people who are in the middle of hunger and thirst. And he's saying in the middle of those longings, in the middle of the craving of having that hamburger shake and fries with two ranch next to you, in the middle of that craving when you don't have it all figured out, he's with you. This beatitude, if you want to call it, my friend of mine calls it the blesseds. In the middle of this is hope. 
It's not a to-do list that says God only blesses the good people or God only blesses you when you're after the right thing. That's not what he's saying here. Remember the scene he's talking to. There's a group of people gathered on a hill. They're attracted to what Jesus has been teaching, what Jesus has been modeling. And he pulls up on the hill and he sits down. And these people have been abused by Rome. Their lands have been taken away. There's a double taxation happening. They have no money. Their family lands, their family businesses are being sold off. There's massive unemployment. The way their culture has been worked has, has, is being changed. They're being torn apart at the family. They're stuck. And is Jesus sitting down to them and says, those of you who have it all figured out in this world, you're the ones that blessed Sorry for everything else. Is that really what we want to say Jesus is talking about here? No, it's not. He's saying those of you who hunger and thirst for the world around you to be made right, he's announcing that God is with you in the middle of that craving. To the ones who don't measure up, God is with you. To the ones who live in the world and wish it was another way, God is with you in that longing. To the ones who wish that this ISIS uh, problem was solved. To the ones who wish that this refugee thing would go away, that they would have a safe place to go, that there wouldn't be war, that there wouldn't be famine, that we wouldn't have to have protests and marches that we wouldn't have to worry about school shootings, that we wouldn't have to worry about police shootings, the ones who desire for those things to be a thing of the past, in the middle of those desires, because we don't have those things yet, in the middle of those desires, Jesus comes and says, I know what you're screaming about. I know what you're protesting about. And I'm with you in that longing. God is on your side and he wants the same thing you do. And in the middle of that blessing, we find a filling. When you're uh, fighting for those things, when, when you're flipping through and you see all the problems, it's incredibly isolating. You think you're all alone in wanting this because it's so much pressure coming from, from outside sources and you think, I have to fix this alone. But in the middle of that, God is saying, actually, I'm... I want the same things. I'm going to stand right by you in this. Some want to take this passage and say that that filling, that's that satisfied, as, as another translation says, that that will only happen when Jesus returns. That's not true. Yes, it ultimately will be done when Jesus returns. We live in a kingdom that is both now and not yet. We live in the tension of some things are figured out and some things aren't. But that doesn't, it doesn't give us a cop-out reason to say, well, I guess this refugee crisis will just solve itself when Jesus comes back. So until then, what's on SportsCenter? It's not what we're supposed to do. If that's what Jesus was saying, then he's saying to a group who are losing their lands, who are going hungry, who are being taxed, who are being kicked out, families torn apart, what Jesus is saying, yep, when, when I come back and make everything right, it'll be great. But you just have to wait for like... 2,000 years. Just wait. Uh, but don't worry. We're going to have pizza at the end of it. It's going to be awesome. That's not what Jesus is saying here. He's saying in the, God is present 
with us when righteousness is absent, when we long for righteousness to be present, the craving shows us something good. It shows us that we're aware of it. The religious impulse that many follow or many have been sucked into is this idea that we can't have a bad day, that we can't look at the system and go broken, that we can't speak up when there's injustice because Christ has beat death, therefore we have to be happy all the time. We have to have it all figured out. We have to have all the answers. I don't know is not acceptable. That's a religious impulse, but that's not what Jesus is saying here. We don't have to live like that. We don't have to have it all figured out. This is an announcement that God meets us in the empty places, that God meets us in the anger and the frustration. The blessing of that, that is from God is here, doesn't come from shame or judgment It's not advice, it's not condemnation, it's not blame because we haven't figured this stuff out yet. Instead, he's speaking love and acceptance and he's saying, I'm with you in that. And if we want to know what the gospel is, there it is. He's with us in this. That's the good news. The beautiful, disruptive, provocative gospel that Jesus is entrusting us with in order to share with anybody else, is not to say, get your stuff together in order to be blessed. Rather, it's when you don't have your stuff together. Even in that place, God blesses the absence of it all and says, I struggle with that with you. I'm by your side. And for me, when I look at the images on the television screen, it's comforting It doesn't mean that I could sit back and say, I'm just going to wait here for God to fix everything. No, it means that I'm not the only one that's hurting about this. We read Habakkuk. Anytime you can read Habakkuk is is really fun because then you have to say Habakkuk. Um, If we live in a world where we think things are broken, Habakkuk lived in the same kind of world. And he has very honest uh, discussions back and forth with God. He's very honest with God, as we see here. How long, Lord, must I call for help, but you don't listen? Have anybody ever said that in prayer? I have. How long have we, how long must I wait for your help? Or cry out to you, violence and violence, and you do not save. Why do you make me look at injustice. Why do you tolerate wrongdoing? Destruction, violence are before me. There is strife and conflict. Therefore, the law is paralyzed and justice never prevails. The wicked hem in the righteous and justice is perverted. Have any of you had Habakkuk days? Yes. We're full of Habakkuk days. But the temptation that we run into is that if we have a Habakkuk day, God's going to be mad at us. So I can't have a Habakkuk day. Or I'm going to lose a blessing that I think I have when I have all the right answers and don't have Habakkuk days. But the counterintuitive message of the gospel is that in the middle of your Habakkuk day, you have a presence next to you. And you're blessed. 
It's okay to have those kind of prayers. It's okay to say those things after you watch the nightly news or after you take a 10-minute break on your social media page. It's okay to look at the world and say, this place is broken because God looks at it and goes, I know, I'm with you in this. His desire is the same as yours and he wants to make it right again. And he wants to use you to make it right again in whatever gifts or abilities you have. That's why we wanted to show Mike's story. In talking with Mike, he goes, uh, he starts noticing that all of these things with sex trafficking, human trafficking are all around him and it's broken and he has this desire to make it right again. This is not right, he said when we were chatting before. And he wanted to use his gifts to actually do something about it. Many of you are doing that and fantastic. I'm so glad for you and you're stepping into places where you don't see righteousness. Many of us are still on the sidelines wondering where we can be involved and you're hungering and you're thirsting. God is with you in that hunger and thirst and he'll be with you as you step into it and use the way that God has gifted you to bring righteousness to those places. You don't have to ignore your frustrations and put them to the side. The fear that, that you can't ask that question. You ask the question, God, why is there no righteousness? And God is saying, yeah, there isn't. I'm with you in that question. And I want you to step in and do something with it. You hunger and thirst and God blesses that absence. Blessed are those who physically ache over the condition, over their inner self, over the condition of the world. Jesus blesses the absence. If I were to uh, retranslate this verse, it might uh, sound something like this. Blessed are you when you ache because the world isn't how it's supposed to be. Blessed are you, God is with you, when you come to the end of yourself. God is on your side when you get frustrated enough to throw up your hands and say, God, I can't do this anymore. God is on your side when you can't make the tension go away, no matter how hard you try. God is on your side when you run out of the willpower, when you run out of the control, when you run out of the bravery, and when you run out of energy. Because in that place, in that space, in that longing, in that hunger, in that thirst, in that ache, in that pain, Jesus announces, me too. And I'm with you in that. Pray with me. God, I pray uh, for those here who are at the end of themselves. They have no more willpower. They have no more strength. They have no more ideas, creativity. May we know the truth of this announcement today that you meet us in the places of our hunger and our thirst. God, for those having Habakkuk days or Habakkuk lives, we ask that you satisfy the hunger in that place. For those who are torn between the ethical choices that of what we have and what's been given against what others have and what others don't have, as we live in that tension, as we celebrate your generosity. Well, on the other hand, 
we seek your justice for others. As we hold that tension, meet us in that awkward place, that tense place, that difficult place. And Lord, may we know the truth of your announcement that in those places we are blessed. God, for those who are expecting some kind of judgment uh, for the ways that we might have blown it, God, may you speak to them this unexpected message of salvation, of trust, of love, of grace, and of your presence. God, may you rescue us from any other truth or any other gospel that tells us that we have to have things together in order to have your presence with us, in order to be free. Lord Jesus meets us in the middle of our brokenness, in the middle of the absence. God, we thank you for Jesus who is willing to die for this message and his resurrection that reminds us of his kingdom. Lord, may your kingdom come to this place, to this brokenness, in the middle of our news cycles, where we see pictures of little boys and little girls that just need a place to call home. Lord, may we pray, we pray that you show us our part in this, of what we can do. As your laws supersede any other laws, Lord, may you show us our next steps. Lord, we pray that your kingdom would come here in Seattle, in our neighborhoods. Would your kingdom come here as it is in heaven? In Jesus' name.